Alternate Take. I am your host, Danny Rodriguez. Welcome back to the show. On this episode, we went back into the comedy world, man, and we couldn't have done it with a better guest. We brought you guys comedian Jay Mandiam. Jay's been around for a long time, dude. Jay hails from Dallas, Texas, and uh, when he first got to L.A., his home club was the Comedy Store. Since then, he's written for the likes of Adam Sandler, D.L. Hughley, and he's done a lot of amazing things, man, and it was an honor for him to join us in the show today, so... I don't want to ruin the interview. I want you guys to hear the great wisdom of Jay Mandium. So without further ado, I bring to you the great comedian, Jay Mandium. Alternate take. What's up, man? We are back, dude. And we brought you guys one of the best comedians out there, man. We brought you Jay Mandium. What's up, man? How you doing? What's up, Danny? Man, thanks for having me. Of course, man. Dude, I saw your stand-up for the first time, actually, at the Bray Improv, which is surprising to me because I've been to the store, like I don't know how many times, not so much in the last two years or so. But I looked you up and I saw you at the store a lot. Yeah, well, that's my, that was my home club. That's where I, uh, when I moved to L.A. in 2010, that was the first club to kind of welcome me and say, you know, make this place your home. And then I was, uh, I worked every job at the comedy store, man. I, I, I was, uh, I checked IDs, I sat people, I worked the cover booth, I cleaned the toilets, I was Polly Shore's tech support for a while, man. Like, I did every job at that place. Uh, and then I, I think I finally left maybe around 2018. Wow. Because my, uh, my, uh, my career kind of started taking off. So uh, I, I have a lot of, I don't, I don't perform there as much anymore, but I have a lot of love and respect for that place because that is where I found my feet as a comic. Yeah, dude. I always say that place is like the batting cages for MLB All Stars. It's like everyone who's a, who's a fucking beast does 15 minutes. But it's like they're trying out shit. It's like it's like if there was a whole batting cage with Mike Trout with name other fucking great ball player, and that's where they go, and you just get to watch them go and hit. And then when they want to go play their real games, they go to fucking their venues, they go to their stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? And um, dude, what do you think of the documentary? I fucking loved it. The comedy store documentary. Yeah. Um, I uh, I loved the first episode, man. I love that that one about the seventies. I thought that was really well done, and then yeah. sort of like the camaraderie you felt because. Um, you know, but before the pandemic, I used to uh, I used to have uh, dinner with Jay Leno every Sunday night. And oh, okay. Not to not to name drop, but that's just a, <laughs> it's just a, no a, fucking big deal. Yeah, no. But um, there was a TV show on Showtime for a little bit called uh, "I'm Dying Up Here," which was based on a book, which is about that '70s time period at the Comedy Store. But because it was a you know a, a drama show, uh, they really like tried to play up all this jealousy and create all this. All this tension between the characters, and you know, when I, when Leno and I would talk about the show, when we were watching, when it was on, he would say, uh, you know, the thing they missed about that era is the fun we had, the, the how we supported each other. You know, right. somebody made it onto the Tonight Show, we were all in the kitchen watching them on TV that night in the, in the Comedy Store, and I felt like that first episode really captured that thing he was talking about that was missing from that TV show. It did big time, dude. Because especially when they went over the Freddie Prince stuff. Dude, when they were playing Jackson Brown, then I was getting emotional and shit, like, yeah. as, like as if I knew him or something, dude. But that, that's the crazy thing. It was like you, I, when Freddie Prince passed away, that really was a sign of like unity for all those people that came up uh, together with him at the comedy store, and, and and Freddie Prince was kind of the person who put that place on the map because he did, he was work like he was a working comic in New York, and then he came to L.A. And uh, he was working out his Tonight Show set at the Comedy Store before he went on Tonight Show. So then Carson said, this next young comedian can be seen frequently at the Comedy Store. And that's when everyone around the yeah. nation heard the Comedy Store. And every Letterman said, I've never done stand-up before. I want to be a funny person. I just know I need to go to the Comedy Store because that's where funny people are. So crazy, dude. It, it started a whole era. And I heard uh, Rogan talking about it recently, too. Like, the last, like, when you were there, like, especially, like, 2016, 17, 18... Was just bananas, dude. I, I went on a Wednesday one time, and I shit you not, I, I went because the lineup was already fucking crazy. It was like Rogan, Burt, uh, Tom Segura, Chris D'Elia, every killer you can think of. And then, like, surprise drop in Martin Lawrence, surprise drop in Dave Chappelle. I was like, this is literally the fucking most insane. Like, I don't even know if people here know. Like, I'm sure they do, but, like, I'm sure someone brought a date here who's just blind to what the fuck's happening right now. This is the best of the best you'll probably ever see. Oh, man. Like, so when I started working there in 2010, it, business was dead, man. Yeah. I, on a good night, maybe we get 60 people. Yeah. Uh, so, but, you know, I'd see, like, some phenomenal stuff. I'd see, and a lot of people come in there because they knew it was so dead, so they knew they'd get away with stuff. Yeah. I think one of the best experiences I ever had, uh, Chris Rock came in on a Tuesday night. And 
he sat in a stool and just read off of a notepad as dryly as possible. No way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's That's so just, sick. So then Wednesday night he comes in. He's standing up. The notepad is on the stool. He's saying the material, but it's still in a very like dry manner. Right. Thursday he comes in. No notepad. He's talking a little more like himself, like a conversational type thing. Friday he comes in. It's and it was like so cool to see his process on how he like because he wants to make sure that the joke itself is good right. before he puts the little Chris Rock spin on it. That's G- okay. So Chris Rock's a good example because um, I know for his big special, Space HBO, he had a lot of writers that are notable now. Big dudes like Louis yeah. C.K. Um, I know you've done work like that too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I did some work on uh, Adam Sandler's Netflix special and then uh, D.L. Hughley's latest Netflix special. I worked on that. Yeah, and I see you're you're very tight with D.L. D.L.'s like my dad, man. I love that guy so much. I have nothing bad to say about that guy. Wow. Dude. Yeah, he's. I saw him uh, at the Long Beach Convention Center. It was him. Uh, Gary Owen was headlining. And it was, who's the really big black dude with the dreads? He's always with DL. He's funny as shit. Comedian. Oh, oh, uh, Eddie Griffin? No. No, not no, Eddie no, no. Um, um, he's really fucking fat. Like, not the kind of like. Oh, oh, Bruce dude. Bruce. Yeah, Bruce Bruce. Dude, it, it was probably like four or five years ago, too, man. And it was one of the funniest goddamn shows I've ever seen, man. It, I mean, you, I grew up with that shit. You know, you see fucking, uh, who's uh, Mr. 3000? Fucking oh, uh, uh, RIP. Oh, uh, Bernie Mac. Bernie, Bernie Mac. Mac. All that shit, Cedric the Entertainer, man. This is the yeah. best comedy in the world. Um, when did you get started, man? Like, how did that creep up into your head when you were a kid? Was it something you always thought of? Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, um, I when I was a kid, my dad and I used to watch a lot of sitcoms together. My dad loved watching sitcoms. Yeah. And uh, he, he would do this thing where he would try to predict the next line or a joke <laughs> in a sitcom. And usually he'd be right, and yeah. he'd just, like, raise his arms victoriously and say, I should have been a scriptwriter. <laughs> And I, you know, my dad just he he was an older guy. I was my dad was fifty when I was born. He was so he wasn't oh, a, he wasn't an active guy. He would just come home from work. He'd eat his salad. He'd watch Jeopardy. He'd watch sitcoms. Yeah. He'd go to bed and then you know, go to wake up at four thirty in the morning, do his day, and then you know go to work. So the, like sitcoms were his only form of like entertainment that he had. And I guess seeing my dad watch this this every every night. And what he he watched every sitcom, whether he liked it or not, he watched every sitcom till the day it stopped airing. He never gave up on. <laughs> he would and he would come to me. That show is going from bad to worse. Like he, <laughs> even if he hated it, he still watched it till till the end. And I guess I subconsciously connected that this is a this this is, this art form is something that people enjoy. That it like gives them escapism. And when I was growing up, it was, you know, Cosby Show, Home Improvement, Seinfeld, Mad About You, Ellen. So I thought you had to be a stand-up comedian to get your own sitcom. So I decided probably like around the age of 13, I'm going to become a stand-up comedian. I'm going to get my own sitcom since that's since that's what gave my dad so much pleasure and escapism in life. I yeah. want to do that for other people. And when I was in uh, when I was a freshman in college, I was taking a class in the broadcast journalism department, it was a video production class, and I had to cut together a news package. The way I cut it together, I was doing it like I was doing it for The Daily Show and not the 5 o'clock news. Uh, my professor said, okay, I'm going to have to fail you on this. <laughs> but do you do stand-up? And I said, no, I've always wanted to. And her friend owned a comedy club in town, so she called her friend. She said, uh, I have a student who wants to do stand-up. Can you help him out? And uh, so I set foot on stage for the first time. June 3rd, 2003. July 3rd, 2003. That's what it was. July. Oh, shit. Because I remember I had invited all these, uh, all my friends. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go do stand-up and do an open mic. You going to come? You going to come? Bringer shows. And ev- it, it wasn't even a bringer show. It was just like my first time doing an open mic. I was like, you going to come? You going to come? I'm going <laughs> to perform. I'm going to perform. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then everyone's hitting me up the day off. Oh, July 4th is tomorrow. I'm going to go see fireworks tonight. <laughs> Fuck you. I'm out, man. I love America. I don't love your stand-up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, shit. That's funny. Do you think, I don't know, So I'm no fucking psychotherapist or anything, but do you think um, that maybe you're looking for your pop's approval then a lot because of that? Like, that's kind of why you're like, well, my dad likes that. And because we're so distant in age that maybe 
I would do that because then maybe he'll like me more. You know, I shit. think I think there is a subconscious thing of like, oh, if I got on TV and I could entertain my dad like that, that would be something meaningful because that was the only thing that seemed to give him any sort of. And what I like from what I observed from him, that was the only thing that seemed to give him any sort of pleasure was, right. was watching that. I know, like na- now that I'm older and and my, you know my dad passed away a few years ago, so there's like stuff I found out about his life after the fact that like. I, I understand that he did have other passions, but that was really just his biggest form of escapism and, and like unwinding. Dude, it's mine too. I'm not. I wish I was cool enough to be like sitcoms are cheesy. Dude, I fucking love the cheesy shit. Man, I grew up watching Friends. Uh, Everybody loves Raymond. How I Met Your Mother. Um, shout out Full House and your and your friend Bob Saget. Man, tell, tell me about that, man. Man, you know it's it's so funny. Like, okay, I wasn't friends with Bob Saget by mm-hmm. any means. He was just a very nice guy. Who if I if I sent him an email. He responded. If I showed him a video, he watched it and gave me feedback. He's just a very kind, available man. That's a friend, brother. Right and there. and and uh, it's like you know when I was when we were doing uh, DL's talk show, one day DL had a um, he hated one of the guests because her publicist wouldn't let her comment on anything because she was afraid of her her client getting canceled or mm-hmm. something like that. So that that actress just sat there the whole episode, not saying a thing, and DL and. So then it's like DL and the rest of us to carry the show, and then DL was saying, "Yeah, man, I, I, I don't, I don't want another guest like that. I don't want a guest who doesn't know what, who doesn't want to talk about anything, right? Yeah, because then it, it drags the show down." And I said, "Well, you know, you know, I kind of have a relationship with Bob Saget. Yeah, you, you want me." You want someone who's not afraid to say anything. <laughs> yeah, no you shit. Want, you want to ask Bob? He's like, I would love to have Bob Saget on the show. So I reached out to Bob and I was like, Hey, do you want do you want to do it? And he's like, Man, I, I love DL. You know, I do anything for DL. I for you, of course. So Bob came on our show, and the network um, at the time was uh, hesitant about it. Like all the network execs used to, they used to watch our show like a hawk. Yeah. And they would come to taping. I remember the the Bob Saget episode. They all pieced out before he even <laughs> showed up. Oh shit! They all called in sick that day. Like, yeah. oh, I don't got time for this. No, no. So, so, so Bob came in. He was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Everyone had a great time, and the network, you know, they didn't want to promote this episode. They wanted because the network we were on. I don't want to say they were racist, but right. they were a uh, their target audience was black people, okay. primarily like older black women. Right, right. Bob Saget isn't necessarily the target. <laughs> Dude, for not at all. I don't know any black people who are like, yeah, I love Full House when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, it's just not a show they watch, or or his comedy later. You know, it's yeah, not a thing. exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so when I would go on the road and open for DL, I would just like, cause you know, when, cause I would open for him while we were doing the show. So I, you know, I was a cast member on the show, right? And, then, and so then I talk to the fans after the show, and they'd be like, oh, we love you on the show. We love the show. I watch it every night. And I'd be like, hey, just curious, what's your favorite episode? Because I always wanted to gauge how the work we're doing is being perceived. Of course, yeah. And a lot of people around the nation would say that the Bob Saget episode was their favorite. Wow. That's so cool, man. It's funny, dude, because when I was a kid, I he's America's dad. I didn't see that at all. And then, and then I saw Half-Baked like at 11, and I was like, what the fuck is happening? He's like, I suck dick for Coke. And I was like, oh, shit. And then I saw his stand-up, and I was like, dude, this guy, he was so cool, man. I, I, I never met him. Um, but I saw him at the store a couple times, like popping in and whatnot. And I've I've only heard amazing things. You know, when some when someone's as legendary as him passes away, you hear, uh, you hear some motherfuckers that come out that like finally say what they wanted to say, and it's kind of unfortunate. You're like, oh shit, I didn't know that about him. But you didn't. That's not Bob Saget. When he passed away, it was it was literally just like tributes and the most amazing things people could say about him, man. Yeah, like, you know, I went to his memorial, mm-hmm. and, you know, I, like I said, I, we weren't friends. I didn't know his wife. I didn't know his kids. I didn't know, I just, uh, I knew he had a wife. I knew he had kids, but, right. uh, you know, I just kind of went up to his his wife and told her, hey, you know, right before Bob passed away, he had sent me this note, and, and it just really meant a lot to me that he said this to me, and she kind of cried and gave me a hug, and she said, thank you for telling me that. Wow. And then I, I told his daughter I said you know this is the kind of stuff your dad used to say to me and she said I, I want you to know he meant every word of that he never lied to anybody he never told anyone just to, something Damn. to placate them dude uh, it's a lot like dude I swear to God comedians and their relationship with like legendary comedians and the up and coming guys and the open mic and the doorman it's a lot like a like a military experience dude it really is because you guys all know you're going to fucking war all the time and when you have someone like him he's like a corporal 
and he's like telling you nice things. You're just like a fucking young little soldier going like, fuck, dude, like, this is amazing. I can't believe I'm getting this advice. And someone who's that accomplished is telling me this. It's the same shit. But the yeah, camaraderie. You're, you're not wrong. It's like it's when you remember what it's like being in the trenches. Yeah. You take that experience with you as you rise up. So you have respect and gratitude for the hustle that happens in the trenches. So you remember like it's. I can identify the comedians who don't actually respect the art of stand-up when they don't respect the hustle, when they don't respect what it's like to be in the trenches. Right. What were your trenches days, dude? Tell me when you first started doing like those fucked up open mics and all that shit when oh, you first started God. getting work. So like in Dallas, when I first started in like 03, uh, I remember one time I did. I was at a really shitty dive bar for an open mic and I went on stage and I was bombing. Like, But this is a dive bar and I'm, Fuck it, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a year into stand-up so like I, no, there's no – looking back, I shouldn't have been good anyway. So. <laughs> but I remember I got off stage. It's 2003. The comic comes on after me and says, hey, 10 bucks says the guy who just got off stage had fuses in his shoes. And I'm like – Motherfucker. Here we go. A fucking terrorist <laughs> joke, really? Like, too easy. It's like, not even funny because it's too easy. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> that shit, come on, man. So, like, that's the stuff I had to deal with back then. And then um, when I got to the comedy store, because the comedy store was a really dark place then, uh, like, there's a lot of, I don't even know if you'd call it, like, hazing or just being an asshole or what, but, like, the group of guys that, that were kind of, like, running the joint when I came in, they had all been like hazed and treated pretty poorly when they came in. So they kind of passed that on to my generation. Right. And so, you know, like I would go you know, part of working the door is you got a guaranteed employee spot on Sunday and Monday. So I'd go up on Sunday or Monday and then like the the other guys who worked there before me, like they'd come in and just heckle me during my set. Fuckers, you know? Yeah. And then not only that and bump you last minute, not not because they want to, just just to Yeah. Just to fuck with you a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. I saw. Well, I, I remember Joe would mention that uh, Rogan would say like that it was like that for a long time, and I think the big swing around was like what, like 2013 or so, somewhere around there is when like he started talking about it a lot in his podcast. Yeah, there and was like, it just uh, there were a lot of bro. a lot of things that happened that changed the sort of dynamic at the comedy store. So the the change started to happen around like 2014, 2015. Right. Um. So it was like uh, it was uh, Rogan started talking about it a lot on his podcast. Yeah. Even though he hadn't been there in years. And yeah. Then, and then Mark Marin started talking about it a lot on his podcast. Then Gerard Carmichael shot a special there. Ari Shafir shot a special there. That's right. And then Louis C.K. shot a special there, all within the same year. Jesus. So those sort of five, those coinciding of events kind of started to like get the co- comedy store back in people's consciousness. Right. Then uh, the other things that happened were. There's a show called Roast Battle. It was like a super underground show in the belly room. It happened on Tuesdays at midnight, and Jeff Ross would moderate it, and uh, and it just comics would just like roast each other. Right. So, uh, but it was like a rap battle, but with roast jokes. So that show got really popular, and that brought new attention to the comedy store. So that garnered enough attention that it got Joe Rogan's attention that he was people were like Joe you gotta come check it out and he's like no I'm not gonna come back to the comedy store and they're yeah. like no you don't understand it's different it's different management changed yeah, yeah yeah so then there was a management change too the management change coinciding with the Rogan or coinciding with the roast battle that's what brought Rogan back so then because there was a management change Rogan came back to watch roast battle the new managers came up and said hey we just want to welcome you and put all the stuff behind so then Rogan started coming back so like if all those things kind of had to work together yeah so Rogan coming back was the final piece of the puzzle that made it pop again absolutely dude because we're talking LA man we're talking people that have known Rogan forever for fear factor and then huge fight fans all in LA too it was just a it was a recipe for and not only that he's he had the biggest platform then like people were are starting to like say that now, like he has the biggest. I'm like he's always had the biggest platform. I'm like no shit. Like it's it's been like this since like 2015, and like all those guys that have been getting interviewed, like Joey Diaz and all these guys. Now you're gonna go see Rogan, but you're gonna see all these other guys, and then that's when you get to see the young and up and coming comics, man. And that was that was the coolest part of going there, dude. Absolutely. Um, oh shit, sorry about that. No, you're fine, man. But um, I was gonna ask you, or I was I was gonna like bring it up, dude. I I like how you do your comedy too because, um. I think it's really important when you do comedy that you just fucking tell your truths. I don't think you even need to fucking talk about truths in general because we're not all going to be fucking uh, George Carlin. But I do think it's important to tell your truths. And I like how you talk about your Indian culture all the time. I think it's super fucking funny, man. And it, it dude, it makes you relatable too, man. I, I It's like uh, I always related to fucking the rap battle at the end of 8 Mile yeah. when it's like 
you can't burn me because I'm burning myself. And then I take away, and it makes it liberates everybody when you just fucking joke on yourself, man. Yeah, you know, I, so after Louis Anderson passed away a few weeks ago, I was watching his very first Tonight Show set. And yeah, I've seen that. Every joke he says, like the first joke's a fat joke. And I'm like, okay, this is funny. Second joke's a fat joke. By the fourth <laughs> joke, I'm like, dude, how many fat jokes are you going to tell? <laughs> And then I cuz like I I I knew him personally so I knew that the 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 eating thing was a big source of discomfort for him. Right. And then and then like right when I'm starting to like be like dude how many of these jokes are you going to tell? He says it on the tonight show it to the audience. See, I have to say these things that way you can't because I know you're all thinking it. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, God. That's the genius we, of it there all. There we go. That's like, the genius and, of and it And it was like that moment where I'm sitting there being like, dude, stop with the fat jokes. He knew I'm sitting there going, stop with the fat jokes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he says it. So, you have, like, yeah, exactly. If How are you going to say anything worse to me than if I'm already saying something really terrible about myself? Absolutely. Tell, tell me about your, uh, your Indian upbringing, man. I, I know it's much different. Um, than a lot of other cultures. Like if you're Mexican, you can compare that with Salvadorian, Ecuadorian. It, it's very similar, especially even it's even similar to Italian. It, but India is a lot different. It's all the same, man. Like yeah. because I watch. So I I have yet to see like an accurate portrayal of Indian representation in in TV or in movies. The most accurate portrayal I've seen is my big fat Greek wedding, and they're not even Indian, <laughs> man. But that's like that just shows you all these immigrant cultures were all so similar, you know. Yeah. Like it's all family, parental expectations, sibling rivalry, all of that stuff exists. So food, you you know, I'm, I'm sure in your culture, your mom's always trying to shove food in your face, Absolutely. right? Yeah, that's how it is in my culture. Absolutely. It's all the it's all the same. So it's like even if I'm talking about my specific upbringing, you're gonna find something you relate to. Because because our cultures, even though they're, you know, the details are different, the the, the ideas are the same. It's, Absolutely, it's all the same. And then it's coming to this new country where you want to retain your, you want to retain your cultural identity. But I'm sure you've had it where it's like, yeah, I struggle with how am I going to be American versus how am I going to be part of uh, make my parents happy and and do the cultural things they want to do. Right, right. You know, I never really thought about it as much. Like, um. I mean, first of all, it's it's I'm Mexican American, so like it, they say it in the movie Selena, where you're like, uh, you know, Mexicans don't like it and Americans don't like it. You're just kind of your own little thing. But I never give a fuck about that kind of thing. Like, um, my thing is like, dude, I'm I'm Danny Rodriguez before I'm anything else. And um, if I as long as I, my personality is what I like it to be, then my culture is it only enhances me. It doesn't it is, but it's not who I am right off the bat. It's not what I lead with. I don't. Give, I'm not gonna go around saying I'm a Mexican American. Like who gives a fuck. What what do you like? What's your character like? And then I'll and then we'll see how we go from there. But um, it's funny, man. I think the only representation I've seen of like Indian culture, and I really loved it, was uh, this movie just came out a couple years ago. It's called Blinded by the Light. It was the Springsteen kit movie. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't watch it, but you know what's funny is like that movie came out at the same time as yesterday. Yeah. And I was it like, did. I was like, that's so funny. We had two movies about Indian people dealing with like popular. <laughs> American songs. Dude, I'm telling you, man. It was that time where everyone started getting crazy. Like, where's our movie? Where's our movie? I knew Mulan, Mulan came out with a fucking remake and shit. I remember, dude, I remember I went to go see Mulan. I'm not even making this up. I went to go see Mulan, and there was protesters outside protesting that it was racist. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing uh, there was some protests like, uh, oh, they don't show the Uyghur camps in, in Mulan. I'm like, it's a fantasy. They don't want to show the reality of the genocide camps. I it's saw them Disney with like, movie. like Black Lives Matter fucking things. I'm like, there can't be black people in this movie, motherfucker. Yeah. You understand that, right? We're in China. It's like, an extra maybe? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Yeah. Just mind, mind your business. I'm trying to watch Mulan. It's fucking 11 o'clock on a Friday, mind your business. Yeah, man. Like, so, some, sometimes I think the wokeness does get a little too far. Like, you know, I, I had auditioned for this uh, this Hulu show, Pam and Tommy, that's airing right now. And mm -hmm. the, ro the role I auditioned for was to be one of Jay Leno's writers on The Tonight Show. I know for a fact he didn't have Indian writers back then. <laughs> so I'm sitting there being like, I'm not going to get this role. I'll audition for fun, but I know I'm not going to get this because it's historically inaccurate. But, the you know, the casting people are so... Con, con, um, consumed with the the diverseness, right. the, showing representation, but it's like, what is the point of showing representation if it's historically inaccurate? Right now, that there's a huge disconnect between the people selling this shit, where they don't realize that the market is asking for the truth now. People are going to Joe Rogan, not CNN or Fox. They want to hear, they want the truth. So we want historical depictions of what it really was. No one, like, as soon as we see a little bit of wokeness, everyone's like, ah, fuck, here we go. The whole 20 minutes is telling me I'm a piece of shit about something. I don't know what the fuck we got to do here. Or we got to have a girl referee. Like, I don't give a fuck if she's a, how many dicks she has or doesn't have. If she's good at refereeing, I'm good with it. 
But if she sucks, then I want her off the bitch. I want her off the field. Yeah. I don't want to see this shit. You know, what are we doing? So I think there's a, a lot of that. And I think there's a lot of that in comedy, man. I haven't seen that until like the last five or six years. And it's been kind of strange because when I first got into comedy, there was in my head, and I was young, so I'm, I'm, you know, not the best memory, but in my head, I didn't remember much wokeness. Um, and I've seen it a lot in the last five, six years. And it, it's kind of weird, dude. It's kind of, it's kind of weird because it's not like funny. It's just like a, it's just strange to be there when you feel like someone's just like kind of lecturing you. Like I can be on any side and anyone can make it funny. I, there's liberal comics, there's conservative comics, and both can be really funny. It's not about that. But when, when you're like not even just joking and you're just like kind of just yelling at people, you're like, what the fuck is this shit, dude? Like I, I'd rather get yelled at by my teacher. I don't need this shit. Funny is funny. Like funny. Funny is la- funny. Laughing is involuntary. You know, right. like you can't. So like Dennis Miller did this joke. Um, and here's the thing. Politically, I may not agree with Dennis Miller. Right, right. But he did a joke. He said the only way Trump would be welcomed in California is if he came there illegally. That's a funny joke. It's funny. I can't. It's funny. I can't argue that. Yeah. It's a funny joke. I may not agree with his political stance, but I can't say I cannot take that away from him that he did not write. A, I can't say he didn't write a funny joke. Absolutely. And and, and it, it, that's the thing is people have to distance themselves from what they believe ideologically with just what's funny. Yeah, dude. Absolutely. And when you're only when you're focusing on that, dude, that's when you're just focusing on the art. And that's what people like, dude. Like you can tell a real comedian nowadays, man. I, I've always been the biggest fan of like uh, like the dirty club comic comedians, man, who just they just tell the truth. They is it is what it, they're not looking to be famous, you know. Like I think there's a big misconception about comedians where they where they're attention whores, and it's not true, man. They just know they're good at something, and they and this is their therapy for a lot of ways. And a lot of them don't even want the spotlight when they're done. This is what I do, and I'm fucking out, going home, mind my business. But um, how's that been for you guys in terms of the comedian circles? Is there like a is this something that's talked about in the green room? Is there a big, like a big disconnect? Like this motherfucker over here, you know? I mean, yeah, yes and no. It does come up, like, but also, I there also is like a a delusion that goes on, especially like if you go to the open mics and stuff, where mm-hmm. a guy is just probably not being funny, but he sits there and thinks, "Oh, the audience is too woke. <laughs> they're too woke. They don't they don't understand my humor because they're so offended by it." And it's like, no, nah, dude, you're just not funny, man. Absolutely, yeah, dude. I've seen that before, man. There's some open mics around here. I'm telling you, man, it's brutal. Like even I go, I'm like, I don't even think. I should do this, man, because there's been like seven unfunny dudes, and I'm probably gonna be the eighth one. This is fucked up. I don't want to do this, but I'm with you, man. Um, when did you start getting uh work outside of the comedy store? So, uh, so when my my dad passed away in 2018, and that's sort of when I was getting phased out of the comedy store because of the the new management shift, right? And um, but like you know, I never quit and I never got fired. They right. just kind of stopped putting me on the schedule and stopped giving me spots, and uh, and then. Uh, and then uh, that's kind of around the time that I met DL, and DL was like, you know, hey, I like you, I like, I like your material, I like the way you write. Can you write some stuff for me? So I started writing for him, and then uh, we, I wrote that special uh, Contrarian with him, and then he got a, a Netflix uh, job. Uh, so then, like at this point, I was at a real low point because you know, like uh, my uh, my dad had just passed away. I don't right. have a job. I I don't I don't know what I'm gonna do with myself. So Jamie Masada at the Laugh Factory saw so I was in like this depressed state, and he said, "Buddy, buddy, you come work for me until, until you get back on your feet. We'll help you get through this." I was like, "All right, cool, oh, awesome." So, um, I just on the special with DL, I thought I'd never see. I'm never gonna see this guy again. Yeah, I'm working at the Laugh Factory. DL decides to pop in one night. He sees I'm physically working at the Laugh Factory as Jamie Masada's assistant, and like, it's kind of disgusted him. And he came up to me and said, "You are too talented to be working here." The next day, I get a call from someone at Netflix saying, hey, we've got D.L. Hughley on this show, and he said we have to hire you as a writer, or otherwise he's going to walk off the show. No way. Yeah. So, wow. So I walked into Jamie's office, and I said, Jamie, I just got a job offer to go write on a TV show. He said, buddy, that's what, we, that's what, you do, that's what we're doing here. You yeah. go take the job, buddy. And I said, okay. And so then I, I, I worked with D.L. on that show. I was his, uh, I was his like, writer and producer on the show, and then uh, – he liked working with me so much on that show. He said, "Why don't you start coming on the road with me and opening for me?" And I said, "Okay." So I spent about a year opening for DL on the road, and then uh, and then uh, that started getting the attention of other people. Like, because you know, I'd spent a lot of my years just working at the comedy store, and so people knew me as the Indian guy who worked at the comedy store. Yeah, no other Indian guy who worked at the comedy right, store. Right. Yeah. And then uh, so there was that. So people thought I never left the store. Then um, now it's like, oh, he's opening for DL. This guy. He doesn't do material that that we would think goes with a black audience. Yeah. What is what is going on here? So I started getting a little, I started getting attention from comics that never used to pay attention to me or just wrote me off. 
And then once we started doing DL's talk show, his nightly show in 2019, that opened up people's eyes to me even more because then guests would come on the show, comedians would come on the show, and then DL would kind of pimp me out and be like, hey, you know, Jay's a really good writer and comedian. You should have him open for you. And so that would ha- that opened a lot of doors. So it really is working with DL opened all these doors for me to start working with other comedians or get looked at differently by a lot of comedians. That's great, man. It's I think it's genius, too, by DL to have a different person open up for him and have a different view. Man, I just saw uh, George Lopez at the Microsoft, and first opener was uh, Brian Callen with the K. Yeah, yeah. Um, fucking great comedian, but... You know, super funny, knows his audience, um, you know, tells jokes about how his his wife's Latina and then, and, you know, does the whole bits and it's great. Um, What's fascinating about Brian Kellum, too, is what I love about watching him is he is so physically animated. Dude, so much, man. I was getting sweaty just watching this. I was like, this is amazing, dude. Like, I'd be, that's a workout what he's doing in there, man. He's doing squats. He's running down the fucking stage. It was beautiful, man. Um, but he went, he nailed it. Then he had Ruben Paul next. And Ruben Paul, again, saying super funny jokes. And then it's George Lopez. I'm like, dude, like, that's a that's a situation where you can easily say, oh, off the bat, looks woke. He's just getting a white guy, a black guy, and a Mexican guy. But like, no, they're just funny, and it worked. That's what people want. That's what we want to yeah. see, man. I mean, that first those first few months going out with DL, it was a it was a learning curve for me because you know I'd never gone, I'd never done uh, a black room before. I never done black audiences. Yeah. So that was number one. But the number two, it's like you know these people. They came here to see DL. Right. They don't want to watch an opener. Now, if they are going to watch an opener, they probably want to see a black guy. So I'm already, I have like two or three uphill battles that I'm fighting. And then on top of that, sometimes the show starts an hour after it was supposed to start. So now it's starting late and they're tired and they're angry. (laughs) So it's like I have all these. So it was a great learning experience because I had to figure out how to deal with all this and still be myself and not pander to the crowd or change what I do. And DL used to tell me all the time, he said, do not change what you do for my audience. Do not change yourself. Do not write new material. Find a way to make what you do work for them. And I figured it out eventually. It took me it took me some time, but I figured it out. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, what were your um, biggest lessons you took from, like, bombing? You have to bomb, obviously. Yeah. Um, what were those biggest ones you took where you're like, fuck, dude, like, this changes everything I got to do going forward, I'm going to double down on myself or I got to ditch that fucking joke or maybe I got humbled. What, what were those experiences like? So like, um, you know, go, go, going out cold, uh, sometimes I, like I used to open up the show by saying, hey, I'm going to be the fluffer. And then uh, one of the other comics who would go out with us, he said, you shouldn't call yourself the fluffer. Then people would think you don't respect yourself. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, I never thought about it like that. And then uh, one of the other things, so then it's like, you know, what you say about making fun of yourself I, I go on there and they'll be like, well, why is this? Why, who's this guy coming on stage? Why is the tech support on stage? So then I'll call that out. I'll be like, yeah, y'all are saying, why is DL's tech support on stage? Boom. First laugh, number one. Then I realize, okay, well, they may think he just brought me out as a favor and they expect me to do better. So then I'll be like, oh, no, I am a professional comedian. And then I tell them like a joke about like how I, how I am a professional comedian. And then boom, that gets a, a little bit of their trust. And then what really solidifies it for me for for me with them is when I show them, hey, you guys aren't the only ones who white people hate. They hate me too. <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, it's funny. My dad, my dad always relates it to uh, his his analogies are fucking. They're annoying because they're so cheesy. You can see them at a you can see them on the dollar fucking checkout at a Marshalls. But like he has a lot of sayings. Like oh, he always says, "Be the lab." And like his analogy is. There's pit bulls, there's chihuahuas, and they're always trying to prove a point. Like, both of them are doing the same thing. Look at me differently. You know, like, pit bulls are always trying to be tough guys, and, and chihuahuas are always trying to be louder than they really are. He's like, a Labrador doesn't give a fuck. You take a Labrador to a park, and you let him off the leash, he says hi to 300 fucking people there. And the first person that says, we don't like you, goes, okay. This goes to the next person, goes, want to pet me? And that's the spirit you need to have, not just in, and not just in being a comedian, but in any job. Because that's when you really know that this guy is not, especially in entertainment, where it's like you said, People respect you if you respect yourself. And as soon as they know there's a little bit of either fanboy in you or arrogant piece of shit, you're out. No one gives a fuck. But if you're just being the lab, you're just being yourself, then they're like, this motherfucker's yeah. good, man. You're being, a, you're being yourself. You're being self-aware. 
And the other the other mistake I've seen a lot of like non-black comics try to do when they do black audiences yeah. is, is try to be like, no, it's okay. I'm allowed to be here because I my <laughs> wife is black. My neighbor's black. Like, yeah. They don't want to hear it. They're not interested in that. No, nah, no. Don't ever apologize for shit. Don't double like always double down. And obviously, it's done with humor. You're not being an asshole. It's being it's being funny. That's the whole point. But if you as soon as you go like. Oh, oh! I didn't mean it that way. Like, uh, come on! I, I'm joking, clearly. So it was funny, but um, that, I get what you're saying, man. Be yourself. Do what you gotta do, and people respect it, man. I, I love your fucking comedy, man. It's going great. What's your like your next ventures? What are you looking to do, like tour wise and all that stuff? I mean, man? I'm just looking to get back to work. The pandemic, you know, I shot my late night debut for Jimmy Kimmel Live. In, so sick. In March of 2019, like I was like, my life is gonna change. My life is gonna change. And uh, I shot it the week everything shut down. So I got I get off stage and the pr- producers come up to me. He's like, hey, that was great. You did great. So I don't think we're going to be airing this for a while because there's, there's shutdowns going on. Uh, oh, there's, shit. There's limiting capacities. We're, we're afraid that if we show this, it's going to look like we're disrespecting people by showing a large gathering. So we're just going to we're going to shelf this. This is 2019. It's, tw- it's 2022. That thing's never going to That was 2020. This thing's never going to air now. It's, right. So it's like yeah, I'm, I'm back to square one. Uh, 2019 was the best year of my life. I, you know, I was touring a lot. I was working. That's all. I, I just want to work again. That's all I want. Yeah. Uh, so right now it's been a very slow build post pandemic, um, especially because like I went. So I, I don't know if you know this. DL Hughley got COVID in a very public way in 2020. He there was a video that went viral of him passing out on stage. Oh yeah, dude. That that was because of COVID. Yeah. Oh shit. I was the only one who didn't get COVID from him on that trip. So then, so he got COVID. All the other openers got COVID. All the all the tour managers and stuff they got COVID. I was the only one who didn't get COVID, and I was living with my mom at the time, who was like seventy five. Yeah. So then I was like, so then he started going back out because he's like, I got antibodies. I was like, well, I didn't get it from you, so I don't have antibodies. So I stopped going out on the road with him. So that like killed a lot of my momentum too, because then it yeah. wasn't like I wasn't back in the like in the in the clubs every week. So like the club managers and stuff that I used to have a relationship with, it's like out of sight, out of mind. So. Now, you know, I'm still like, you know, I'm still cold calling, cold emailing. I'm still reaching out to like the people that I, that used to book me, but it's just, it's been a slow build. So, uh, it, dude, but I'm telling, there's more clubs opening now, which is great. Finally, dude, I, um, that Bellflower Club, that Momo's part, dude, that's a new club. It's great. Yeah. It's I, great, I hear, dude. I hear, I hear great things. And I, t- I keep telling Momo, I'm going to go down there with you one time, but it's just, it's the, our scheduling has just never worked out yet. But absolutely, man. No, it, I, it's funny because it's like, it's a lot like that with a lot of performers. We just had this guy on recently. Um, He's a detective for LAPD, but he's a mariachi singer. Huh. Dude, it's it's phenomenal. And he's fucking, like, really good. Like, he's an actual singer, not just mariachi. He's both. And he goes, he made this really beautiful tune, like, 2019, where it's, like, a mix where he's walking out in his mariachi uniform, and then, like, it changes into him in his LAPD. And this whole, the song's called El Servidor, and it's about, you know, growing up in the East Los Angeles community and growing up to being, like, proud to serve his community. You know, and but also proud to have his Mexican American heritage. It's a beautiful fucking song. He goes, dude, I made the song. I'm getting calls from fucking the news channels. They're all like, this is amazing. Like, you know, a, a minority or whatever. They're trying to blow it up the way they're supposed to. He's like, a fucking week later, George Floyd happens. I'm a, I'm a racist cop. They're like, we're not showing your shit. Sorry. <laughs> he's like, dude. He's like, and then it's been two years. Like, they still refuse to show it and all this stuff. And he's like, it's no problem. I don't take it offensively. He's like, but there's things out of your control that you there's nothing you yeah. can fucking do man you just got to show up you know and then just play fucking ball man it is what it is yeah um yeah uh, right now my my 2022 calendar is so dry i got one date on the books june 14th if anyone's out in manhattan new york city i'll be carolines on broadway in times square hell yeah man um did you have any like role models in comedy from like from the outside looking in when you first started maybe like I know, like, some comedians say, like, I read, like, a Judy Carter book and it fucking changed everything for me. Or I saw Richard Pryor and that's it, man. It was over to I mean, when I first started, I'd say, like, Seinfeld, Cosby, and Paul Reiser were the comics I studied the most. Wow, Just, okay. I, I, lo- I loved everything about them. I wanted to be like them. But I I watched every comedian. Like, it's, it, you know, being an Indian guy, I'm more – being an Indian guy from Texas, from Dallas, Texas, I'm more or less a white guy. <laughs> uh, in terms of my interests, my hobbies, yeah. my personality, but it's you know my my dad and I we watched every comic, so we watched Kings of Comedy, and I and it's so crazy like we watched Kings of Comedy, and I remember back then I was like thirteen or fourteen watching Kings of Comedy, and I remember like D L Hughley was the comedian that I loved the most on Kings of Comedy. He was yeah. the one I just I just related to, and it's like oh crazy, that guy's like fucking full circle in my, in my life now. But we and my dad watched you know we watched Steve Harvey's show, we watched everything. So it's not we were doing Jamie Fox like it's not like there was ever a racial divide in comedy 
for me growing up. I just loved comedy. Right. I would watch every stand-up comedian. I didn't care. And uh, even like guys from the seventies, I, I I bought Gabe Kaplan's eight track because I loved I loved Gabe Kaplan so much. So I bought it. I found an eight track of his album and I bought it and listened to that when I was a uh, when I was in high school. You know? Wow. Um, but when I started getting into stand-up, uh, the there was like one guy who kind of he still does. He dominates the local Dallas scene. A guy named Paul Varghese. So Paul kind of was the guy who I approached when I first said I want to I want to be a comedian and he oh, okay. he helped me out a lot and he told me to take a, a stand-up comedy class taught by a guy named Dean Lewis and uh Christella Alonzo, I don't know if you know who she is. I don't know. Christella is like pretty big right now. She was in the Cars movie, she had her own sitcom on ABC. Oh, no shit. Okay. Yeah, so Christella was uh she was so she was uh she used to work the phones at the Improv in Dallas and she was taking Dean Lewis's class at the sa- around the same time. So like so it was it was like a thing that like it was all the Dallas comics kind of went through this class just to get their feet wet in stand up. And uh, and then uh from that, you know, Dallas was a pretty wild market, and the one yeah. thing, um, I would say Dallas is a great market to develop in if you want to be a comedian, or it was at the time I was coming up. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how it is now, but I'm sure it's still a great market. Would you recommend stand up classes, or, or or like because you got such a fucking learning experience at the store, it's it's just way different than going to a stand. Would you recommend that for people going? Well, in? it just depends on what you what you need, what your needs are. Like, the thing I got out of that stand up class is he taught us a structure that's very easy to to mimic you know you could fit anything into the structure and make it work so once you break it down so it's like there's a structure there's a structural aspect to it but then there's a theory thing too that i learned in that class and that theory thing i keep with me today is be personal don't talk about something unless it unless you talk about how it affects you yeah absolutely dude i i read that judy carter book the first one she came out with and i think one of the things she said was like talk about what aggravates you Cause it's fucking, but learn how to make it funny. Yeah. You know, as soon as you're talking about something that really fucking pisses you off, dude, like, you know, when you see, like, I, I walked into a record store the other day and I saw a Bad Bunny record. I wanted to fucking buy it just so I can break that shit. Cause I'm like, this is bullshit, man. I'm here to buy an Aerosmith record. And, but that's the shit you can learn how to make a joke out of. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like if, if you, like, if you take Brian Regan, Brian Regan's one of the best working comics today. You can break down his stuff into a very easily structured. It's like, you know, I, emotion whatever the issue is you know i hate this i love this i and then he'll do an act out sort of exemplifying what that issue is he'll have like a a point of view either like a hey maybe it should always be like this maybe it should never be like this what would it be like if like he'll have some sort of take on it then he doesn't act out exemplifying his like little point of view yeah it works it works every time it it works I, and I respect he's he's a clean comic, which is fucking hard to do. I, I can never do that. I can't even be clean around my grandma. Like, I, I don't know how people do that on the audience with all that adrenaline and like a one fuck doesn't come out of your mouth. I don't know how people do that, man. Mad respect. Did you have trouble finding like your voice um, oh, when you first started? All the time. And, it, it, it you know, at first I thought, oh, I need to talk. I need to be the, I need to be the Indian comic. And right. I was like, you know, because Paul Reiser and Seinfeld were such influences on me. I was like, I got to be the observational comic. And then, uh, and then you know, once I discovered Christopher Titus, I was blown away with what you could do with stand-up. But um, I took the wrong things from him at first. So, like, he's a storyteller, but he takes all these tragic events from his life and he makes them really funny. Right. All I When I first saw him, all I did was focus on how he took dark things and made them funny. So I started being really dark for a while. Mm-hmm. What I really should just focused on was taking the personal pain and ter- and and telling the story, but mo- but making it funny along the way, not just being dark and morose for the sake of being dark and morose. Absolutely, yeah. And and so there was a there was an event that had happened to me in like 2014, where I uh, I kind of gotten I gotten taken ho- hostage by a Saudi prince. And I didn't know if I was going to make it out alive. This is real? This is real. Holy shit, dude. Let's fuck. Oh, my God. <laughs> Break this shit down. This is beautiful. <laughs> okay, so uh, the comedy store calls me, or the bartender at the comedy store calls me one day, and he says, uh, hey, I got you this private gig at the Beverly Hilton tomorrow. That's uh, for, uh, it's, it's just a private gig. That's all he said. They're looking for a Middle Eastern comedian. I said, oh, Jay's Middle Eastern, right? I yeah. Like, well, I was like, I'm Indian. He said, it's the same difference. Whatever. Fuck it. Yeah, sign me up. Yeah. So, so, um. So he tells me the gig is at uh, at like uh, ten o'clock. So I get to the Beverly Hilton Hotel at ten. There's nobody there, and then it turns out it's ten p.m. 
<laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. I was like, that's late. So I go to the Beverly Hilton Hotel at 10 p.m. Uh, and uh, there's – and, like, I'm freaking out. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing for that. Oh, so I, when I'm there at 10, I'm like, hey, is there an event going on? And uh, and they're like, no, nothing till tonight. And I said, well, what's, what's going on tonight? Because I guess I'm supposed to come back at 10 p.m. then. And then he says, oh, the room has been reserved by Prince Faisal. And I'm like, well, what? So then I, you know, I start calling, I call Russell Peters. I call up Maserati. I'm like, I guess I'm performing for a prince tonight. What do I do? Yeah. What do I talk about? And they're like, just be yourself. Who cares? Who cares? It's a prince. Yeah. You seen coming to America. Fucking say a joke. Who fucking cares? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so then, uh, you know, I get there at 10. It's the prince, his wife. He's got some family there. And some friends, and then there's like there's people putting on shows. There's like dancers that are dancing on stage to entertain him and stuff. There's like this big array of food, and and the prince's like bodyguard person comes up to me. He's like, yeah, take some food, take some food. We'll get to you. We'll get to you. And then uh, so I'm, ta- I'm chatting with one of the guys there, the, the, this white guy. He apparently was a college tennis guy. Like he was gonna go pro. He was gonna go to the U.S. Open and stuff. Now his job is he loses tennis to this prince. <laughs> just to inflate his ego yeah <laughs> oh like this poor fucking guy man like you're doing good prince you're doing good god damn i'm back you really fucked me up on that yeah, one exactly oh, shit. so then uh so then it's my turn to, so then another comic who i know uh who's middle eastern also shows up he get he got booked uh i guess the, they're just whoring themselves around we need middle eastern comics we need middle eastern comics so uh that guy goes on stage he does all right like uh, like or like, it's just like there's a there's a few different comics and like every one of us is trying to find it. And you know, my uh, my friend Alex went on stage and he like the men and women were separated because you know it's a Muslim culture, so they've got they've got these boundaries. Right, and, right, right. And my friend Alex went on stage. The first thing he said was, "Hey, why are you dudes sitting with those girls? Are y'all gay?" And I was like, oh, the room went silent. Like, oh, you can't talk about yeah, that. No, it was a different culture, dude. <laughs> it's all fucking cringy and shit. Yeah. yeah. So then, so then, like, the the prince's bodyguard's coming up to me. He says, you know, go on stage. You know, you need to make fun of people. Make fun of, make a, be, be like Monster Brownie. Be like Monster Brownie. Make fun of Persians. Make fun of Persians. I'm like, I don't know how to make fun of Persians. I'm like, what about Indians? I can make fun of Indians. Like, yeah, make fun yeah. of Indians. Make fun of Indians. Fuck it. Make fun of somebody. Yeah. yeah. Do Indian joke. Do Indian joke. Be like Monster Brownie. I'm like, okay. So I went on stage and uh, and I said, yeah, I, I told this, I told my first joke. I said, you know, my mom's from this poor part of India called India, and <laughs> and you know the prince is laughing. I'm like, yeah. okay, all right, all right. I made yeah. it. Okay, one joke down. And so I, I you know, I, I'm like, all right. So I'm trying to tell more jokes, and then it's like every joke I say after that progressively seems to offend the prince in some way. Aww. Is he doing like hand gestures? He's like, hey, like what, what's it's his just, body language? It's like, like, it's like, uh, it's or like the bodyguard will come and interrupt me and say, oh, no, 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 you cannot say that. No, oh. God. don't tell me I can have fun. And then as soon as I start having fun, you start ripping my yeah, ass. You yeah, know what it's, like, it's like I'll be like, oh, you know, my parents had an arranged marriage. It's a business agreement. Uh, they don't believe in love. They think that you learn to someone, learn to love someone. You learn to find them sexually attractive. Uh, which would explain why all my uncles are alcoholics. <laughs> a bodyguard comes up. No, 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 no. Prince's wife was arranged. No. Yeah. They cannot drink. It's not haram. <laughs> haram. Haram. What are you doing? What are you talking about? Oh, shit. So, so then, uh, like, I'm, out, I'm I'm like losing my mind. And I'm sitting there being like, so then I, 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 I uh, the prince says, you know, tell me something that's really going to make me ha ha. Yeah. So I figured, okay, I got this joke where I mentioned Dubai. He'll he'll get a kick out of it. I'm, I'm talking about Dubai. Of course he's going to get a kick out of this. So I said, uh, you know, there's a comedian named Russell Peters. He's the biggest comedian in the world except for the United States of America. And to give you an idea of how big he is, he did two sold-out shows in Dubai. They wanted him to add a third one. He wouldn't do it. So Dubai had a riot. Dubai will riot for this comedian, but they won't riot for – Democracy. <laughs> oh shit! Meanwhile, there's a broad in the corner with fucking two eyes showing, and she's yeah. going like, "Stop!" Yeah, I'm yeah. getting fed correctly. <laughs> <laughs> the fucking the broad guard just yanks me off stage. The prince does not want the people to have democracy because if the people have democracy, then he's no longer the prince. <laughs> so he, so oh, he takes shit. me over the prince, and the prince grabs my hand and says, "I'm going to take you to Dubai for a year and a half and show you what it's really like." And he had me sit down next to him. And, like, the bodyguard was hovering over my head, and I couldn't, like, get up. I couldn't move, and I didn't know what to do. And, like, you know, I'm just praying. I'm just, like, can Liam Neeson just come in and shoot the prince, please? Uh, like, all this bullshit. And- <laughs> yeah, I was just like, man. And so then, um, so 
like there's this guy, uh, this other comedian, one of the other comedians there, this guy, Tehran. Tehran's like, no, we don't, he's just joking. He doesn't understand. He, he's like basically trying to negotiate my freedom for me. And I'm sitting there being like, man, no, no, my family knows I took this gig. Nobody <laughs> knows I'm here. I'm going to get on a plane to Dubai in the morning. I'm going to disappear. Nobody's ever going to see me again. And this is before that stuff with the journalists happened. So like we don't even really know the extent of what these guys are capable of. Right. Dude, that's bananas. Holy shit. So how did it end? What happened? So then, uh, you know, the, the prince was drinking all night long because he's, okay. he's a good Muslim. Right. So right. Uh, at six o'clock in the morning, he passed out and uh, the bodyguard took him to his room. And I'm like, shit, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know. I don't know. He comes back. He hands me a wad of cash and says, thank you for your time. And I didn't look at the wad immediately, but I thought, OK, for all the shit I went through, there's a certain amount of money that if they gave this to me, I will never talk about this. I'll never say a bad word about the Saudis. Absolutely. The money they gave me was not that much. Yeah, you're like, I, I don't give a fuck. I, that's, that's why I'm telling this story right now. Like, <laughs> I have no problem telling this story right now. Yo, I don't care if it's a dollar. I'm just glad I'm fucking out of there, yeah. dude. This is bullshit. Uh, if they paid me like 50 G's that night, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, me and the prince are cool. We don't, to, we don't bring this up ever again. Man. Absolutely. But no, it was nowhere close to that. So Here's yeah. 10 bucks. Yeah. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Fuck you, man. You kidnapped me and gave me 10 bucks. And Jesus fucking Christ, yeah. man. So I'm telling that story. So, so like Maz Jabrani calls me the next day and he's like, so how'd it go? And then I, I tell him and I'm like, Ugh. and Maz is laughing the whole time I'm telling him the story. Yeah. And he's saying, you got to talk about this on stage. Absolutely. And I'm like, really? So then, you know, one night I'm at the comedy store in La Jolla and, and I, I was just talking, I was talking to my, ex, my ex at the time or my, the girl I was dating at the time, I was talking to her on the phone and she was like, you should, t- you should really listen to Maz. Tell that story on stage. I was like, I don't know. It's like it's a paid show. I shouldn't. She's like, just do. So I did it on stage. It's crushing. And I send my my ex the tape, and she watches it, and she says, "Oh my god! Like when you were telling the story to this packed room, it felt like you were just telling to me on the phone." Right. And she said that you should be doing that more. You should be telling more stories. And so that's when I started like kind of entertaining the idea of like, oh, maybe I'm a storytelling comedian. Right. Dude, and, and that's to me, that's the funniest level of, of comedy, man, because it's it's not a gotcha, oh, the, the genius fucking intellect, you know, bit. Which I, I do like those two, to get me wrong, man. Um, but I do like when people tell stories. I like when you see Joey saying, I'm, I'm I fucking put a I laid a hooker's wig on fire and it's the funniest shit. Or when uh I mean, Tom Segura has a special literally called Mostly Stories, and yeah. it's really what it is, and it fucking murders, dude. His his whole bit of just meeting Mike Tyson on a plane is one of the funniest things I've ever heard, and it's just a story. It's just made up. It's literally just like, this is what happened, and that's it. Well, and and, and I think, you know, Pryor has a, a quote, Richard Pryor has a quote where he says something like, anybody can make him laugh. Can you make him silent? And the, to me, the beauty of being a storyteller is, like, when you can kind of get people to be silent, be scared, be invested in your story invested in you and then you hit them with that laugh it's yeah. it's like not only you've built tension within within them but then you give them the release of that tension immediately absolutely it's Chappelle's the master of that he'll just sit there and fucking make you quiet for two minutes and all of a sudden boom just drop some crazy shit um Dude, how was how was Russell Peters' wedding, dude? I saw oh, that. Man. That, looked, that looked bananas, dude. I will probably never go to another wedding ever again. <laughs> like it was, it was like it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I'm, and I think the 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 real thing that that made it a lot of fun was there was a lot of love there. You know, right, like, right. All of us were just so happy because, especially some of us who've been close with Russell the last few years, know he hasn't exactly gone through the best time, mm. and. For us, for us to see him happy and see this woman who makes him so happy and this woman who who just loves him too, like it made all of us really just filled with joy and and just how much we adore this guy. Because I I have no problem saying Russell Peters is probably the most generous human being in comedy. Wow. He and and so it it breaks my heart whenever someone tries to take advantage of him or does him dirty like it really does because he I do he's so nice like he's too nice to people he's nice to people who don't even deserve his kindness right and, you know there was a guy I used to work with at the comedy store he's a fucking asshole and he uh he needed dental surgery because uh, he wouldn't see a dentist because he didn't have health insurance he couldn't afford it and Russell saw him just like bleeding from the mouth one day because he needed this dental surgery and Russell's like you're bleeding, man. He took him to the airport. Bro, you got no teeth. Him, yeah, yeah, you took him to the hospital. You took him to the hospital. And then he went up to like whoever he could talk to. Like, well, this guy's getting surgery done. He's like, look, here's, 
put this guy's surgery on me. Like I'll pay for wow, it. Wow, dude. And then and then the guy ended up getting a bill from the hospital. He told Russell. Russell handed him a wad of cash and is like, okay, now you only owe two hundred bucks. Like that's bananas, man. That guy was an asshole. He doesn't deserve Russell's generosity, but that's how good of a person Russell is, do man. You, do you think when you get as as big as like a Russell Peters is that you kind of have to counteract? your fame with some like just huge generous acts like that like i hear the same thing about fluffy and how nice he is to like especially like the people that he brought up and how he gives them roles in his movies that he has uh i've heard the same anyone who's that level of big we're talking like kevin hart um who sell out fucking arenas you know like rogan all these guys man man everyone i talked to at the wedding this weekend people i'd never met uh before like people like i was sitting at a table with a guy who said he knew russell for 40 years and he said you know through all the fame and everything Russell has ch- not changed one bit. He's still wow. the same guy so he was cool, 40 man. years ago. Um, and, you know, I, I worked with Adam Sandler on his special. I, again, it's like, I don't think this guy knows who I am. I don't think I'll ever talk to him again. That dude, if I'd send him a text, he texts me back within five minutes. And wow, some, so cool, man. Sometimes I wonder, I'm like, is he really just this nice? Or is there a voice in his head that's like, oh, if I don't text this kid back, he's going to be like, Adam Sandler's a fucking asshole. He doesn't respond to text. So I do think that sometimes maybe some people do have that. I don't know. I don't think Russell's one of those guys. I hope Sandman's not one of those guys. You yeah. Know? Like, I just hope that these are just all... I know Russell's a genuinely nice guy. I think Sandler's a genuinely nice guy. Uh, but I, I'm sure it does get into people's heads at, at a certain level of fame. Like, oh, if I don't carry myself like this... so the word will get out that I'm an asshole. Right, yeah. I saw a fucking uh, Bruce was there, man. Bruce Buffer, dude. He was on our podcast. It was super cool, yeah, man. Yeah, he did the announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> for the first time, time, time. Dude. Mr. and Mrs. <laughs> Russell Peters. I'd be so jacked. I wouldn't even want to get married. I just want to fight somebody, man. Unbelievable, dude. Yeah, he's he's a legend, man. We uh, I interviewed, When we interviewed him, it was, it was surreal, dude, because... Uh, I, did, I read his book like in 2013 when it came out, you know, and I was I was fucking like I, I was so fascinated with the idea that he was even brothers with fucking Michael Buffer and no one knew that shit. I was a big boxing fan growing up as a kid and uh, his stories are super cool, man. We're going to see him in Vegas next week for the UFC fights and uh, all the stories I hear about that guy is he gets the most gets the most ass on the side from what I've heard. I, and I hope that's true. Good for you, Bruce. If you're doing that, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to who he picked up at the wedding then because dude. every chick I saw there, I'm pretty sure had a dude. Like, there were two Indian weddings there the night before Russell's. And so, like, I was just joking around. I was just like, yeah, I'm I'm just going to go to one of these Indian weddings and be like, hey, who wants to go to Russell Peters' <laughs> wedding tomorrow? This arranged marriage shit ain't actually a bad idea. They got to jump on this shit. Man. I, and then one of them's like, Jay, man, they're, they're Sikhs. You're not that kind of Indian. I was like, I'll go to my hotel hotel room and get a tur- uh, towel and wrap it around my head right now. I don't care, man. Fuck it, dude. Anything for some pussy. I'm yeah. in. I don't go fuck, dude. I'll do whatever these chicks are into, man. That's fine, dude. Well, dude, I think it's great that you're in a huge circle. That's huge. Like I said, you're not you're not getting texts from fucking Adam Sandler, invites from Russell Peters, if you're not good at what the fuck you do and you don't have a genuine good heart, man. Because you can be good, but you can be a dick and no one's going to like you, no one's going to text you back or any of that shit. But you're clearly a good guy. You're good at your craft and that shows a lot about you, man. Well, you know, I, I, it does. Here's the thing. I didn't get into stand-up because I wanted to get rich or get famous. I got into stand-up because I wanted to be of service to people through laughter and escapism. And I wanted to get my own sitcom, not to get famous, not to get rich, but because that was a way to give laughter and escapism to people on a wider scale. I don't care if I never make a – I don't have to die rich or famous. I just don't ever want to have to, like, worry about money. Um, but – I do get I do get in my head sometimes like why can't I crack this industry? Why can't I make a living at this? Why can't I do that? Yeah. And and at the wedding, I just happened to be sitting next to Ray Parker Jr. who did the Ghostbusters theme at <laughs> yeah. one point. Song rips, dude. Yeah. And and he said he was telling me about his first album and he's sitting there being like, Yeah, I was just like, I can't crack this industry. Nobody gives me a shot. But you know, I'm writing for Diana Ross and I'm writing for so and so and I'm so like and I'm just like, yeah, you know, I opened for DL, I opened for Russell, I used to open for Louis Anderson, I wrote for Adam Sandler. So I'm thinking, like, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, maybe I'm not making a living at this, and what am I not, do- and I do get caught up in the what am I not doing that other people are doing that seems to get them noticed. But then at the end of the day, I know I must be doing something right if I'm able to still be me and work with all these different, very different comedians. And he said, that's exactly how I felt. No matter how much I couldn't get anywhere in this industry, I knew I must be doing something right if all these other huge artists are calling me to work with them. Absolutely. And it's not just that, man. Like, 
that's the external success, but the internal success, dude. If you're waking up, you're happy, your dick gets hard about going on stage, man, metaphorically speaking, probably physically, who gives a fuck too? But that's the part that really excites me the most, man, is it's cheesy as fuck, but it's true, dude. The whole, like that speech that Kobe gave when he was fucking, when he, his last thing, it's the journey. If you don't like the journey, then, then you're in it for the wrong thing. And that applies to fucking anything, dude. Yeah. And for those 10 to 15 seconds, people are laughing at whatever I'm saying. That's 10 to 15 seconds. They're not thinking about their bills. They're not thinking about their job. They're not thinking about uh, child support or whatever, whatever, whatever ails them at that moment. They're not thinking about it. And so that's, I don't want to get like on some high horse, like I'm doing God's work. I know I'm not doing God's work, but right, right. if I can get you to forget about whatever's bothering you for 10 seconds at a time, I'm happy to do it. Dude, uh, I'm excited for you, man. I, I do think. You know, I think when you have those moments that you're talking about where you're like, what is it that I do? You got to crack this. That's exactly when it happens. It's so weird, dude, especially when you're not even thinking about it, man. And you're just, you're just focusing your art. You're doing well. I think I think 22 is a big year for you, brother. I really oh, do, man. That's kind of you. I appreciate you, man. Absolutely, brother. Well, dude, thanks for stopping in. Um, I want to have more comedians on the show. I want to keep doing this, man. This is fun. Uh, every episode is fucking humbling as shit for me, dude. Absolutely, and especially when someone as successful as you comes in, it's it's huge for me, brother. So I appreciate Smoke it. Smoke and mirrors, man. There's no success, man. Ah, <laughs> dude. Anyone can take a selfie at Russell Peters' wedding. <laughs> nah, man. Having balls and taking a chance is success to me, man. Absolutely. That's what that's what the fuck success is to me, dude. It's not even it's not even money, but it's like, dude, taking a chance on something that maybe you're vulnerable about, insecure about, and going fuck it. I don't give a fuck. Here's my balls on the table. Tony Montana shit. Let's go. <laughs> See what happens. That's success to me, brother. So to me, you're a very successful person, man. I appreciate you stopping in, man. I appreciate you, brother. And uh, for those listening out in the uh, in the podcast sphere, J Mandium. It's uh, God hates J, just the letter J on Instagram. God hates J, just the letter J. I am banned from Twitter at the moment. <laughs> I am in no rush to resolve that. So what would uh, you do? Back up Joe Rogan or some shit? They're like, oh no, man, it's so <laughs> stupid. All right, so there's this there's this Indian guy named Dinesh D'Souza. This guy's a real piece of shit. Oh, I know him. Yeah, he's a conservative guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I guess like back in like 2013 or something, back when I used to drink a lot, mm -hmm. I would get on Twitter and I would just troll this guy. Mm -hmm. And then in 2018, he got pardoned by Trump. So the day he got pardoned, someone found all these old drunken tweets of me trolling him from 2013 <laughs> and flagged them. And Twitter was like, you have to delete these tweets if you want to get back on Twitter. And then, like, he, this dude is just fresh off of, off of a presidential pardon. He's done some illegal shit that he had to get pardoned for. He gets on Twitter and he says some bullshit. And then he's like, hashtag burn the Jews. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm banned from – I'm locked out of Twitter for trolling this guy. But he can be on Twitter saying hashtag burn the Jews? Yeah. Um, there's something wrong here. Dude, I don't even know what Twitter – I don't have one. All I know is like they fucking they're never consistent. They'll ban a liberal for saying some crazy shit. They'll ban a conservative for crazy and then someone who says some really crazy shit, they're like, we'll just leave him alone. And you're like, I I don't even know how this factory works, dude. I hired a social media manager and I was like, you just do it. I don't yeah, fucking know I what's just going like, on. Anymore. Like, you know what? If that's what Twitter's like, if this guy gets to be on there saying hashtag burn the Jews and I can't call this guy a piece of shit, then I don't I don't this isn't a medium I need to be a part of. Yeah, I'm good on that. What's the new shit they're starting where you, you can say whatever the fuck you want, dude? Beautiful. And then and then uh, hey, if you're in, if you're in Manhattan, if you're in New York, June 14th, Times Square, Caroline's on Broadway, one night only. I will be there. My friend Punky Johnson, who I used to work with at the comedy store, she was a bartender. Oh, shit. I, was a, I worked the cover booth. She is now a cast member on Saturday Night Live. She is in her second year. She's going to open for me. Wow. Fucking epic, and, man. And that's what you talk about. Being, we were in the trenches together, so now she's got some success, and she's got some fame, and she's on Saturday Night Live. We still talk as if we still work in the at the comedy store together. Absolutely, yeah. man. So rewarding, dude. I love that. Well, uh, Alternate Take fans, man. Thanks for uh, listening in, man. I hope you guys go check out Jay Mandium, dude. This is Alternate Take. We'll see you guys later. Peace. And there it is, ladies and gentlemen. Our interview with the great comedian, Jay Mandium. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, Jay. I had a blast, dude. It was fun talking uh, all those comedy store memories and all your work that you've done with you know, writing for Adam Sandler and, and all your work with D.L. Hughley. And uh, I'm just excited for the future for you, brother, man. You're, you're a hell of a comic and, and you're doing the, you're doing it the right way. And uh, for all you Jay Mandium fans, I put all of his links in the podcast description. Go out and check that out. And uh, I appreciate you guys, man. Go to our Instagram at, alt, at Alternate Take DR and our TikTok at, at Alternate Take DR. And uh, thanks again. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you to Jay. And I'll see you guys soon. Peace.